Born in Essex, England, Pete Flint is a Brit deeply immersed in Silicon Valley. He's a titan of disruptive innovation and a widely respected leader in the tech industry, and was one of my first early supporters at VivaRail. Two times unicorn, he was part of the founding team of travel industry pioneer LastMinute.com before starting Trulia, one of the most popular real estate tech companies in the U.S. With tales of a successful IPO and an exit valued at $3.5 billion, Pete is now helping entrepreneurs leverage capital, experience, and connections as a partner at venture firm NFX. Today, Pete and I will be talking about how to leverage network effects, building a business that evolves at scale, and NFX's plans for its $450 million pre-seed and seed fund. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At VivaRail, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Carrie Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Cool. Well, listen, hey, Pete, awesome to have you on the chat here. A couple important disclosures here. Uh, well, first of all, Pete and I have known each other for about a decade now. Pete used to buy me lunch a lot in the early days. I was a broke founder. I would fly to San Francisco. I get free lunch, man, all the time. You did, yeah, free lunch. Um, as a starving entrepreneur, I had to look after yeah. you. Yeah, that's right, man. You're just taking care of me. But uh, <laughs> no, thank you, man. And then as a side note, uh, Pete is actually uh, the first LP in our fund, too. Uh, we've got a tiny little fund for those that don't know, and we invest a little bit of money. But uh, our main thing is just the Latitude Fellowship and, and you know, building that. But so thank you for your support of the Latitude community and kind of the support for what we're building here. Oh, of course, Brian. It's like, um, I think you were a couple of years behind me, but building businesses in different parts of the world with similar challenges and all the yeah. rest of it. It's been uh, like we've had, um, you're like a brother. You know, we've shared so much together over the years. I'm definitely the little brother here, but uh, I'll take it. You're older than me, so I, I get to I get to be younger still, I guess. But I got to learn a lot from your path, and you were a great kind of advisor and mentor for me over the years. And in fact, when I was in the transition out of Vivarel, I remember we had lunch on Market Street, and I remember sitting down, and I'm like, hey, how did you go about this whole process of thinking about what to do next? And, you know, so we'll get into 
I've kind of followed some of the footsteps here. I have a little fun, but we're still kind of deciding what we want to become when we grow up. But, you know, it's amazing to see that you put your experience building companies, uh, angel investing, and then back into this kind of, you know, this NFX, which I'm a huge fan of. You guys had some big news you announced recently, an enormous $450 million. And I like how you specify we're not a multi-stage fund because that's what everyone's doing nowadays. They raise funds and then, oh, we're in every stage. But like your alignment is so just well positioned with early stage founders because that's all you do, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe I give you a little bit of background. So NFX, we started, I guess, probably in 2017. So teaming up with James Courier and Gigi Levoy Weiss originally. So James and Gigi, amazing entrepreneurs, amazing people, amazing advisors, amazing investors. And I think we all had done some angel investing over the years, and we'd also founded companies. And I think we what we observed was that in many of our, from what we saw in many of our angel investments, there was this huge gap at the seed stage. There were many terrific investors at the series A's and B's, but we really felt that the seed stage, which is this sort of formative product market fit stage was massively, I mean, underserves the wrong way. We were just frustrated, to be honest. This wasn't the kind of business study. This was like, I mean, where is, you know, this is the most formative time in a company's history, finding product market fit, making those early decisions. If you mess them up, it can be catastrophic for the company. Um, and so we really felt that um, we wanted to build a really high conviction um, seed stage firm um, that combined the operational expertise that you'd see in the very best, biggest firms. You know, we've founded big companies, ran big companies, combined with the um, a platform approach where we have services to help all these companies and just do it in a really sort of high quality, high scale way. So that was four years ago. Um, and so we started with a fund which is 150 and then 275 and now 450. And we're just staying true to what we do, which is really high conviction. Our only business is your seed round or pre-seed round. Um, and so we're really focused on making that work for founders. So that's um that's fun it's been great it's like a like it's uh it's amazing companies amazing journey amazing stories so um i feel very fortunate i want to double click more into nfx and kind of what you're building i want to touch on the fast a little bit we'll get to that maybe before we dive into that let's talk about network effects i mean nfx stands for network effects uh the concept your partner uh james wrote that many people talk about it, but few understand the hidden complexities. So share us what they are. How do they work? Give us a high level kind of quick explanation of how you think about that internally at NFX. Well, I think maybe, I mean, a lot of this is born out from James and myself and Gigi's founding and investing experience. So from my own perspective, I started my career in Europe with an online travel marketplace, which you know, was a phenomenal success. Building an online travel business in Web 1.0 era was a sort of incredible, incredible opportunity. And then in the US, moved to the US and started Trulia, the online real estate marketplace, and took that public. And and you realize you're when you're in these companies that exhibit strong network effects, there is just something kind of when and they hit scale, there was something truly magical about them that they just start 
so almost taking off on their own. And I realized, James realized, Gigi realized that it, like, if you can invest and support these companies early on, then that is a really kind of magical, joyful, incredible experience to be in because they exhibit this quality, which is, and, and by the definition of network effects is the more people use a product or service, the better it gets for every other, every other user, which you think about that, the more people use a product or service, it gets better for everyone else. That creates this sort of incredible flywheel, which creates these winner-take-most or winner-take-all outcomes and, and creates these incredible businesses. And so, you know, I didn't think when I started Trulia, when I was in a student dorm room, that it would become, you know, three and a half billion. And now I think the equity is worth, you know, double that or more than that. And the same, I'm sure, was the case with the founders of Facebook, the founders of Airbnb, the founders of Uber. They didn't think that once these things hit, they would become these massive businesses. So, you know, our focus is, okay, if we see a network effect business, one that has it immediately or has it coming down the path, um, that's absolutely what we want to do. And having, you know, invested in hundreds of these, built dozens of these, we sort of, we start to understand a little bit of the kind of, you know, the areas of focus, the areas of pressure, the areas of opportunity and challenge to help to these founders to scale these, these network effect businesses. And then, and then just, you know, how do you, I mean, there's, I mean, this is, we won't be able to do any of this justice, but the, cause it's a massively sort of complex and, and specific topic, but, you know, when we think about network fit businesses, I think the most common examples are things like um, marketplaces or social networks, but it's way more, you know, distributed and, and um, um, sort of pervasive than that. So you think of operating systems is essentially a, a two-sided platform business. You think of B2B networks, Slack is a, is a, is a network effect business, DocSend, to, so, sorry, uh, DocuSign to some extent is a, you know, a platform network effect business. Um, Salesforce has built a network effect into its ecosystem. So you start to see these um, these businesses achieve these, um, build these ecosystems and build these platforms. And those are exactly the type of companies that we want to invest in. Yeah, I remember like when I was building Viveran, I was getting a little bit of inspiration from Trulia and I realized that there was this flexion point. We got a certain amount of inventory in our website in a market. Then all of a sudden, you know, Google indexed it, started driving to the top of the search results. And then more people were searching, more people were wanting to add inventory. And then the whole flywheel happened. And it was just kind of this, as you described it, it's kind of these things that you are almost surprised yourself in these early days where you're like, wow, this is actually taking off and it's growing at an accelerated rate and it just keeps getting stronger. So if you're a founder and you're thinking about your business, what are some of those early signs? How can a founder start taking steps to design network effects into their business? And in those first conversations, how do you better understand this? I guess I kind of think about it first, but what are sort of, what are some of the raw ingredients of compelling network effect businesses? And so, you know, we look for markets or, or, um, or industries which are highly fragmented generally non-commoditized um, participants in that. We look for high kind of retention or high repeat rate. So those are kind of, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff, but those are kind of the high level things that we, we think about. And, and so I guess you think about, okay, what are the sort of markets and, and industries the most appropriate? And then I think from a founder perspective, there's often, 
I would I would say two approaches to to kind of to very simply think about it. One is to look at how do you day one start to embed services into your product experience that can exhibit this quality. The more people use it, the better it gets for everyone else. And a kind of simple um, thought experiment that you can use is try to think of the your favorite company, which is a sort of a strong network effect company. So that could be a um, an Airbnb or a Facebook or uh, a Slack, a company that kind of starts is build, you know, scaled network effect businesses. And ask yourself, if I was a product manager at Slack and I was building my this product, how would I build it? Put that, take your kind of like the mental model. Um, and it's not to say, you know, you're going to be the Slack of X, quite the opposite, but it's really just helping to unlock some ideas that you can think of these companies that really understand network effects. You understand their products because you use them every day. And think about what that product, product manager of the company, if you hired him tomorrow or her, what would they, um, how would they build your product? So that's one sort of simple kind of um, thought experiment. The other approach is, um, you know, often there are companies that have these very specific network effects at the beginning, but then they, but then there are another class of companies that really focus either tools or products. And then they add a network effect over time. And, that, and that's actually very common, um, particularly in the B2B world you th- or in the fintech world. Like, okay, we're a, you know, a point solution, you build scale. And then the, you know, then how do you, t- and then the question is, how do you turn this product into a platform? And we met a ton of entrepreneurs that say, okay, we're building a product. And then we want to start with building a product and then we want to build into a platform. And it's generally the way to do it. It's very rare that you see kind of platform start from day one. You need to start with a great product and then gain market share and then turn to a platform. And then the the sort of that, you know, that that tool to marketplace or or product to platform transition can often is often happen more often than not by some sort of constraint or accident in the business. So the sort of classic examples are the, the iPhone originally, you know, people hacked it and they created these other apps and, you know, and then it sort of was forced to turn into a platform. You see many companies that are faced with these, an incredible pressure. Okay. They're building scale and then they need to 10 X that scale. And they have these participants, BD companies or suppliers or partners knocking the door, maybe Salesforce examples like Salesforce grew incredibly quickly and then all these people that said, oh, I want to be part of this platform ecosystem. And then they built a platform to incorporate those companies within the ecosystem. So I think having a point of view as a founder, okay, maybe we are starting as a tool and that's great. And we see many companies that get from zero to a billion with just a incredibly well-executed tool. But often to get to that $10 billion stage or the $100 billion stage, you have to incorporate these um, network effects to build that momentum, to build that defensibility, to build that scale that gives you the ability to create these truly category-defining businesses. Do you think most founders have that like long-term vision of what it's going to become? Or do you see more, hey, you built an amazing product, it's starting to evolve more into a platform, and then it, there's an enabler for this other opportunity because there's a lot of retrospective rationalization, right? Where you're you're building and then you kind of stumble into it. How would you say that 
typically happens when you look at kind of the founder journey and as the vision and the ambition gets bigger over time. That's so true. You never truly know. I think for my own journey, and and this may kind of, you may agree with this, but I think there's a element of so much about what you're building is, you know, you have your compass, you know the direction you're heading in, but you can only see a few miles ahead of you. And it's whether you're in a kind of like, whether you're walking at night, whether you're walking through the fog, whether you're walking through a kind of haze, whatever your kind of analogy is. But what I love to see is founders that have a, um, they don't necessarily have a map, but they have a compass. They know the direction they're headed in and they can see, let's just say a few steps, months, quarters, maybe years ahead of them. But the reality is you, you don't know what is ahead of you. And, but if you don't know which direction you're going in, every direction seems like the right direction. So you're going to screw it up. So you have to know what direction you're going in. But then you're going to figure it out. And you're going to figure out what the, you know, if it requires turning to a platform, that's great. If it requires turning into something else, then, you know, the founders will figure out what that right path is. is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say I was someone that if it resonates deeply with me. And as someone who has co-founded something called Latitude, I love these analogies, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm eating it up right now as I hear that. And I think it's, <laughs> I think it's totally right. I mean, you can't, you, you can't know. And I think the one thing just to kind of highlight, one of the things I love about what NFX is doing is you're providing these frameworks for thinking, right? Because there's, if you're, if you're out in the open sea, it's like, there's a lot of ways to get from Rio de Janeiro to South Africa to Cape Town. But if you have a general direction, you don't want to end up in, you know, in Fiji or something, you, you need to make sure. So, and if you're 5% off in that starting point, 10% off versus 30% or whatever, you're going to, you're going to be really far away. So I think that it, it's worth uh, noting for those founders that aren't familiar with the, the content, you guys have taken kind of this network and advice piece and almost unbundled it from venture. And you've like created all these resources and tools. Talk a little bit more about how you've tried to reduce friction for those early stage founders and, you know, kind of why you think that's such an important thing to do out of the gates here in, in early stage venture. From the beginning, we've, um, you know, been publishing a lot, you know, and I guess we, we sort of do it for a couple of reasons. One is that we do it to somewhat efficiency purposes. So like whenever I get like three or four or five people asking me the same question, like I've shared the answer. Okay. Let's just like, write this down and generalize it for those half a dozen people and then publish it because it means that I don't have to sort of necessarily repeat the same thing. You know, and that's how a lot of the actual posts get created because you get asked the same question and you basically write it down or, or, or share it. The other is that we unfortunately can only help about like 0.3% of the people that approach us. So we get like, forget the number, somewhere between five and 10,000 companies are purchased every year, but we make, you know, a couple of dozen investments. And so unfortunately, we're just not able to help them. And so this is a way for us to really help the other 99.7% of folks. And then the third is, is um, uh, getting the word out uh, for NFX. We're in the business of, of the way we kind of generate revenue, I guess, is that we we raise money from a bunch of amazing limited partners and then support 
early entrepreneurs. And so we really are looking to get the word out. And so this content helps us with that. So it's classic B2B content marketing, if you if you could put it like that. And there are some network effects there too, because I've seen that some of the network effects in some of our Slack channels and how the resources get shared. You know, there's it's something that kind of builds on top of it of itself. When you think about these, you guys have decided to double down and make a commitment to early stage founders. It feels like there's this big trend of stage agnostic investing going on. What was the decision internally and what was that conversation internally that led you to say, okay, we're going to be a pre-seed seed fund only? Uh, honestly, like it comes down to like, what is the most intellectually and emotionally interesting thing we can do? And I think a lot of founders kind of feel this way. It's like, if we were focused on the on the single biggest way to make money, I, I don't know if we would have ended up here. There's like a lot of people who are writing $100 million checks without any board seats and any engagement with the company that I'm sure doing extremely well. But think for everyone starting a business, if you are intellectually and emotionally fulfilled, then things are going to work out great. And this is, you know, look, we're an early stage tech, so there's plenty of kind of money and opportunity. So I think fundamentally it's about being intellectually and sort of emotionally fulfilled and buying this this job to be I don't really think of it as a job, I guess it is, but like I find this role to be just amazing to be, you know, to work with incredible partners, James, Giggy, Morgan, Omri, to see incredible founders and science and technology every single day, to kind of be on this founder journey. So I I find it intellectually fascinating. And then I think the this first investor, which we try to be, is is about as close to the founders as any investor is going to be. So we kind of at the core face, and when they're stressing about stuff, I'm feeling it too. And uh, maybe that's just the sort of being a founder. I kind of like being in their shoes as well, so I can sort of empathize with some of the experience. But um, that's you know that's part of the journey. Um, so I find that I find that really you know, and you build special connections with founders, just being the the first people that write them a big check. So that's you know that's part of it um, for sure. So um, I I think this product market fit. I think I, I feel somewhat in a unique position, sort of seeing all the phases of idea to IPO and beyond, to be able to kind of see to be. I find this stage the most interesting time for for company formation to work on yeah it's definitely a time when you can have probably the greatest impact right also it's so early i think yeah i think so but it's this sort of almost formation it's the it's the company formation it's the product formation and i think there's there's a lot of terrific i think it has been very interesting this sort of the way that venture has evolved that you know multi-stage funds are emerging and i think many of them are terrific i think there's a real benefit of focus for us we want to be the world's best seed fund whereas a lot of the other groups are juggling lots of things at the same time um and our hope is that early stage founders will pick us at the seed stage because there are many opportunities to work with some of these great multi-stage firms at their a's and their b's i think the early stage venture capital system has got much more competitive over the last couple of years You've seen this sort of confluence of things happening where you've got incredible talent that's coming out of these big tech companies. You've seen this dislocation in so many parts of our lives because of COVID. 
And you've seen this capital infusion follow the returns of these you know, incredible tech companies. Well, the five most valuable public companies in the world are tech companies that have been born mostly in my lifetime. It's like, it's amazing. And so the capital is following suit. And so things are, it's just an incredible time to be a founder because you have all these, you know, this capital coming in, this talent, this change. Um, that's, you know, that's a, there should be a lot more capital on that. And thank goodness and it's happening in Latin America in a big way. Um, just finally, um, which is terrific. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've been fortunate to do a few deals. I think the first deal we did together was the house, right? Yeah. That was, uh, I guess it was 2018, maybe. Yeah. We, we yeah. Invested yeah. In. yeah. And since then, you guys have done a handful of other investments. Share a little bit about your, expand on that a little bit. Historically, there wasn't a lot of interest. And I mean, 2018, there wasn't a lot of Silicon Valley VCs investing in Latin America in 2018 when you guys were poking around a year after you'd started, right? So it's not, it wasn't an afterthought for you. You guys saw an opportunity and you took it. What is the current kind of internal discussion uh, around that? And and then let's talk a little bit about the fast, because I'm sure that there's probably some entrepreneurs listening that one should know about it because, you know, I, I talk about focus on, in the early days, you know, not just valuation, focus on value and your partners and getting that right because it's the foundation for everything. So maybe share with us a little bit more about how the geographic discussion happens inside NFX and then talk a little bit more about FAST and, and how that's uh, evolved. Yeah, so we made our first investment in Latin America and the house, which well, I was part of the um, loosely part of the Vivarial journey since the early days. So I kind of had some exposure to kind of like Brazil and the region. And, you know, I guess as I look back and sort of the, a little bit of the sort of, and the way we think about these in, things internally, it's, it's Latin America is just such an exciting continent right now. And I think there's, and it's easy. I was born in Europe and in, in the UK. And so it's easy for me to like compare like, Europe versus Latin America and uh, you know just because it's US and Latin America are obviously very different but you can see these you know I can it's easy for me to compare Europe versus Latin America and things I love about Latin America is is one that a mobile first continent in a way that it's not the or mobile only continent and it's not the way the same in 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 Europe there are a lot of sort of traditional kind of like desktop companies competitors that were built up like none of that really existed in Latin America, it's just it's sort of very few homegrown companies. And then suddenly mobile came along and just like it dominated everything. And so it's more greenfield, I would say, than anything else, than perhaps Europe. The other piece is the talent. When I first moved to the US in 2003, the grad school, there was a lot of um, students that were at grad school and they went back to China in 2005 and back in India, and they built amazing businesses. And I started to see in sort of five to 10 years ago, the same thing happened in Latin America. And COVID's accelerated. Like, I think they've sort of had exposure either domestically with um, incredible companies like Rappi, the homegrown companies, New Bank, or, they, or they've worked in, in US companies or gone to US schools and then got back and built these incredible businesses. Um, so the talent pool is incredible, very smart, very ambitious, very hungry, very global. And then the, the third piece is around the just, I guess, the sort of 
I look at Europe and it's very fragmented, um, very sort of, you know, um, different rules and regs and language and so forth. And of course, there's a bunch of differences in Latin America that perhaps I don't always understand. But there's there's a lot more homogeneity as well. I think the sort of culturally things, people are fairly similar. The Brits are completely different from the Greeks, for instance. Um, and I'm sure, you know, an average Mexican would say they're totally different from the from the Chileans. But like you do, you know, I feel that there's kind of at least more sort of homogeneity, at least just basically from a sort of number of countries perspective. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're just taking the baseline of language, right? I mean, you've got, you know, the Spanish language, and then you have Portuguese in Brazil, which Brazil is, is a bit different. But still, you look at the similarities across the board, and there's a lot. Much different than even a country like India, that's the same country, but there's all these dialects, and there's all these, it's massively different in Chennai than it is in Mumbai. So it's a region that does have um, a lot of similarities across the board. It's interesting you mentioned the talent thing. I was exchanging a text message this morning with Anibal, who's a Latitude Fellow, and he's at Stanford. He's at, he's at GSB. And he told me that 10, about 10% of this GSB class is from Latin America, which you know is the largest ever. And that is a sign that, first of all, there's a lot of great talent and a lot of smart people in, in the region, but we're seeing a lot more activity. And I think that if you combine that with the time zone difference, it's much more attractive to be investing here than in China or somewhere else where you've got a crazy impossible time difference. And so I think there's a lot of things to like about it. So it's cool to see that you guys are early on that. Yeah, no, we've done, we've invested in the house, which is terrific team and company. Uh, Zubile in Mexico is doing incredibly well, which is sort of providing workers to help um, e-commerce and other things. We've invested in Nubo Cargo, which is Mexico-U.S. supply chain logistics company, and then Mellon in Colombia, Mexico, which is providing e-commerce infrastructure services. So those are a bunch of the things that, that we've backed. I'm in three of those four. I, Deepak, I was late to Deepak, so next time. But yeah, we're in three of the four deals together. That, that's awesome. Let's talk about this fast. This is an innovation. I mean, listen, I always look at you guys as your entrepreneurs, so you you really do put this entrepreneurial hat as investors, right? You're not, you don't want to settle for like, okay, let's raise some money from investors and let's deploy the capital. You've got this lens of how we can do things differently. So how did you come up with the idea for FAST and maybe give a quick explanation of what it is? Yeah. So, so I guess a little bit, you know, when we started NFX, one of the things that we really wanted to do was to, you know, again, sort of treat the building of a venture capital firm, like building a startup that we would have done in an early life. And, you know, whenever we see a problem, we think, well, how can we build software to solve that problem? And so really since inception, NFX has been, had a very significant software team. So we have about a dozen people um, working at NFX, which are building products, you know, internally focused and then some externally focused. And so we have this, you know, bunch of systems internally to help us do what we do more effectively. And it's, you know, we've kind of all been inside, well, you and I have been inside some kind of VC firms and there, a bunch of them are just work like old law firms. Like there's a bunch of people sitting around a table making decisions and interrogating founders. And it's like, um, and it's kind of BS in 2021. 
Um, and so we want to make sure that we run things in a modern way. And, and a lot of that comes from software and data. And, and so we, we, we like to solve problems. So we have a lot of this sort of softwares and tools, and we can talk about that. But what happened about 18 months ago in deep COVID um, was that um, we felt that, you know, A, we, A, we were confident about the future. Um, that this is, you know, actually more of a technology accelerant than a than anything else. But we saw a lot of funds kind of close close shop, um, not sort of physically, but just like they were distracted. And, I, and we saw a lot of founders approach us that were like, okay, we're ready for business. This is time to go. And so what we launched in back in April of last year was a fast program. So what what this stands for is founder-friendly, application-driven, software-enabled, and transparent, which is really a tool to help founders to simplify the interaction process with, with us and to give them an answer within nine days whether we invest. And capital, you know, maybe a week later once we get the kind of wires figured out. So um, a really, you know, founders come in, enter information like they would do, a deck and some other data, a short video, and then, you know, we spend time reviewing that internally. And it's an incredibly efficient process for founders. Um, and it's frankly very efficient for us as well because I can get to see, you know, substantially more than I would otherwise. And so we did that deep COVID. It was incredible success. Um, and then we really felt that, okay, that was a good sort of experiment. And we opened it for everyone in, in COVID. We had thousands and thousands of founders approach us. Um, and then we, with sort of coinciding with the launch of our, our third fund, we said, okay, let's do it again. Let's launch another. But we have, you know, various vertical focus. Um, so we chose a bunch of industries, which, are, you know, we felt, you know, we're going to start with, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff coming. And you can find more information at fast.nfx.com. Um, but really, we want to give a really a simple, straightforward way to get connected with with NFX without of this any of this sort of warm introduction stuff, which um, you know we think can sort of limit some uh, founders from different backgrounds to interact with us, limit the lack of transparency. You know, when I was a founder raising money, like half the time we would go into a black hole. And you'd never know where you are. We just want to, you know, we want to give you a sense of where people are in the process. Um, and using software, which, you know, we're in 2021. We should be using software for everything we do. So, we, so we're so we running that um, during the month of October for a bunch of different verticals you can find. And then we're going to launch some more um, industry-focused stuff um, later on this year and next year. So things like crypto gaming, which is we're very excited about. Um, the intersection between Web3 and gaming entertainment, prop tech, fintech, marketplaces, bio. Um, and um, I think we're doing one which is basically trying to weed out this incredible town that's sitting in these enormous sort of um, atrophying big companies. So, like, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the potential founders that's sitting on their stock options at, big tech companies that really they just need the extra nudge to, to go and get on with their idea. That's the big tech dropouts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just 
Come on. Come on. Yeah, come, come on. on. You can do it. Remove the golden handcuffs. Exactly. And, and have fun in your life. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, no we, we see a lot of that at Latitude. Um, you know, if we look, we look at the fellowships, we've got people that have been at larger tech companies that are, you know, looking to take the entrepreneurial path and they, they need that kind of like initial push and, and help and support. So let, let me ask you a question about this. Given that you guys do all this writing and you have, do you develop like a thesis about a sector and then do you go looking for opportunities also in a sector or when you get all these applications, let's just, I'm taking a look at the website. Let's say that on the marketplace or, or the crypt, crypto gaming fast, for example, are you developing like a thesis about what, how that's going to evolve? And then you're seeing if there's a pattern that fits that, or is it a combination of that along with seeing interesting opportunities? Yeah, it's a combination. I think we, we often go in with a point of view about where the, where the interesting opportunities are. You know, that's both at sector level and then at a sort of category level, whether it's in, just say, in sort of fintech, what are the opportunities that we're focused on? Okay, it's not fintech broadly. It's like, okay, these sort of platform businesses within fintech. Or if it's in, you know, prop tech businesses, what are the kind of, is it the COVID transformational business that we're looking for? Or it's, So we, we often go in with a very specific point of view about the types of companies in sectors that we're looking for. But it is definitely non-exclusive. You know, I would say a significant number of investments are just we meet an amazing founder that is way smarter than any of us, who has a vision that we wouldn't have come up with. We're convinced that this individual um, or this team is able to invent the future um, that we've not thought about. So, you know, so much of this stage of investing is really having a, um, a belief in the team to execute and a point of view on how a market might evolve. And then the product is like TBD. You know, we know the products are going to evolve sub- substantially and we just look for the, the right DNA and the founder, founding team to be able to navigate that journey. And how do you, you know, you've got this concept that you talk about NFX and you've written about it around the ladder of proof. And so how do VCs typically use this to sort they sort of kind of judge a startup based on this framework. Can you walk us through some of the steps and, and which ones you look more closely at for the stages that you invest in? I think this, I mean, the sort of principle here, I think, is with any considered purchase or any like long-term relationship, it's like you kind of like, you know, you want to, you know, just like um, whether you're buying a house or whether you're finding a spouse, it's like you kind of, there is a sort of a series of kind of mental gates that you go through. Um, to find the right fit. And so kind of we look for a number of different sort of gates to go through, whether that is sort of an understanding on the markets, understanding can this person hire a team? Can this person, can this team, the right go-to-market strategy? So it's just a, you know, and then at each of these points, you kind of, there is some drop-off in our decision-making process, but some, some folks get to the top and that's where we invest. If you had to ask kind of one question, if you only had one question to ask a founder, what would you ask them to kind of better understand the business or whether this is a good potential opportunity for you, if you had to boil it down? Gosh, I I wish it was that simple um, to ask one (laughs) question. (laughs) 
Um, I was trying to go for that reduced framework of thinking uh, so we could boil it down, but it isn't, I can't really, I don't have a clear answer for myself. So well, that's why I, I'm asking. I guess I would put it down to that. What do you know about this opportunity that very few other people know? I would put it down to that. And I think, you know, this is often sort of written about that successful startups are often non or often contrarian at the beginning. We've written about this, other people have written about this, but, you know, there is early stage startups are often, the most successful ones are often ignored or thought of as a toy or thought of as irrelevant or as a crazy idea. That's actually often a critical part of being successful because it's non-consensus. Um, if it was consensus, then 17 other companies would be doing exactly the same thing. This way, if you have an insight that very few other people have, you're able to execute to that direction before the competitors enter, before the capital is flooding into those different areas. And that gives you enough headroom to build significant market share. And in network effect businesses, you know, once you achieve an early leadership position, it's sometimes hard to mess it up. They, you look at some of these old network effect businesses like eBay and Craigslist in the US, and they're still around. And so, and so you kind of, so what is it that you know that very few other people know is a way to really think about these sort of contrarian ideas that, and, and, you know, and really appreciate is, is this a sort of crazy idea? And does this founder have unique insight that is going to be necessary to build a business? When you look at venture capital, it hasn't changed over the last three or four decades. And you've got these investors with the big pools of capital that are investing in software that, let me use the overused word, which is disrupting industries. Why is it that no venture funds or very few venture funds invest heavily in software themselves? And then what do you expect the future of venture capital to look like? Hmm. Big questions. You know, I think of the the way the venture capital has evolved is, you know, you go back into, the, you know, the 90s, 80s and 90s, there were very small people in a very small community that were connecting with brilliant technologists and entrepreneurs and, and backing them. And that was it. There were literally a few people in the office and um, they were executing and, and they were, you know, building great firms. I think today, you know, there's, there's been this steady march to institutionalization in a, in a good way of this, this asset class. And these firms are building really, you know, major and significant sort of institutional advantages, be that through the brands that they've built, be that through the portfolio and network that they've built, the community between founders, the software and data infrastructure, the tribal knowledge that they've you know, they've, they've built up over the years, um, the talent that they could bring into these companies. And this stuff is, is accelerating incredibly quickly. Um, that will, you know, you start to see this, you know, while it still will remain very, very fragmented, um, there may, you know, you start to see some of the big firms sort of increasing their pools of capital and talent to, to accelerate this change. So, and that's kind of inevitable how this world is is going to evolve. Um, and I think you look at the capital flowing into this industry and the returns 
and the companies have been created coming out of it. And this is just getting going. Like this is so early on into this transformation um, that you'll start to see the um, the momentum is picking up. But I don't I don't see this sort of like winter that we saw in two thousand two two thousand three. I think this is just going to carry on. It will ebb and flow in different sectors, but will continue. Um, you know, the one thing that I probably don't see changing more radically is is probably the the fund structures um you know the limited partner universe where you know the way the venture capital works is limited partners which are these endowments and foundations and family offices and pension funds are generally very thoughtful and conservative folks so i don't see a kind of like you know a tokenization of venture capital in the near term just because i think the limited partners generally are uh you know they're very patient long-term capital and they don't want to mess it up so that they're not necessarily going to be the first ones to take risks you know i i do see this you know the notion of you know named rounds um a seed an a a b just kind of um dispersing um dramatically um you know it, it seems that there's this you know uh, so many of our companies are raising capital in between rounds um, right now, um, particularly the early stages. Like the velocity of fundraising is is happening. So rather than these sort of big giant rounds, you're seeing more and more smaller rounds going on. And I, and I think that's you know that's akin to what's happening in the public. Well, it's not exactly how it works in the public markets, but you'll start to see rather than these step change valuations, you'll start to see kind of like more. Um, gradual changes over a company's lifestyle, which, again, is a great thing for founders. Yeah, I think that if you look at part of the, you know, what's happened in the private markets, right, there's the retail investors are kind of left out a little bit because these, you know, these large hedge funds and have just gone earlier, right? And all of that capital kind of increase, it's, you know, if you if you look at your early stage investing, probably this private capital that used to be in the public markets that's shifted earlier. I mean, this obviously it, it benefits you. If you look at the, the volume of series A and series B, like just the, the likelihood they're going to get funding is, is greater because there's just more capital in these private markets. Obviously there's questions on that. What looks like what that looks like for retail investors and you don't have everyone participating in the upside of these public companies, which is like, you know, truly it went public it was, you know, not not a unicorn, and then it exited for, you know, several multiples of that. And and nowadays, you're you're seeing companies hold off longer. Do you think that trend will continue? And what is the private? Are we going to see more? What used to be retail investors getting in? You know, you look at the evolution of AngelList, and now there's more people investing in private markets. What do you think that's going to look like over time? And you know, how is that going to affect the asset class? Yeah, I think there's. I mean, looking at the sort of, I think I saw some data the other day that the time frame from company formation to IPO hasn't actually changed that much. Um, but what has happened is that companies are growing faster than ever before because the market's so much bigger. The tools are there, whether it's AWS or Facebook ads or, you know, whether it's Deal or other services to recruit people. So companies are growing way faster, but they're staying private, you know, at a higher revenue multi, uh, higher revenue numbers, and they're raising a bunch of this late stage capital, 
which is limiting the ability for public market investors to really get these sort of massive upsides at IPOs. So and some, you know, some of these public market investors are now coming down um, to invest in, in private companies. I don't really know exactly what's going to happen. I, I think there's good, but there's going to be more um, ability for you know the public to invest in private companies in various ways going forward. Um, it seems natural that that's the way things will evolve, um, and um, there will be tools to, tools to help that. Um, I also think that there has been this massive transformation of what. Um, used to be the friends and family round, which is when you think about like, what is the, this, this, it used to be, you know, 30 plus years ago, the only way you could start a company is someone who would have a rich uncle or a parent or an aunt, like, you know, someone to take them under the wing and give them 5k, 50k, 500k that would kind of help them get going. And now there is this whole raft of accelerators um, or, you know, angel, professional angels, um, that just moved from this friends and family round. And those, you know, they were, you know, it makes sense what they were doing, but they generally were providing limited advice. And you probably didn't want to, you know, lose your uncle's money at the end of the day. Let's face it. It's just made for a good Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, but this professionalization of that, of the early stage, which is it's from that zero to one point company formation. And I think that is going to spur a lot of, hopefully a lot more uh, innovations going forward as well. Pete, man, it's, it's awesome to have you on. And uh, I'm obviously a fan of what you're doing. And, you know, I even spent pre-pandemic, I got to sit in your office for a little bit and, you know, meet the team a little bit. And you gave me a desk space as I was like trying to think about what I'm trying to do. So I'm really appreciative of that. And uh, yeah, I think for the founders listening, uh, NFX, they've got a pretty nice pool of capital and they're looking at deploying it. And LATAM is an area they're already familiar with. So it's great to to hear that you're innovating in the space. And, you know, I'm a consumer of the content as well. And so uh, thanks a lot for being a supporter of me and a supporter of, of Latitude from day one. And yeah, that's, uh, it's exciting time to see where it goes uh, at NFX and Excited to see what the next innovations are down in the pipeline with software products and, you know, Signal and and, and other things. So thank you for making the time and uh, vamos Latam. Thanks, Brian. So good to see you. Enjoy the conversation. We'll catch up soon. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Pete Flint, founder of Trulia and partner at NFX. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship programs and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Balmos la thumb. See you next week.